Good evening and welcome to Inside Studio 54 and more with yours truly, Denise Chapman. I have a bit of a cold this evening, but that never stopped me from a night at studio, so let's have some fun. Yeah. 
That was Lovin' Is Really My Game from 1977, Brainstorm. This track always packed the dance floor with that happy jumpin' beat. Okay, you are here with me inside Studio 54 and more with yours truly, Denise Chapman. Ever since December of 1977, any cut from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack will forever remind me of December and this time of year in the greatest city on earth. And any time I mention the boroughs, I'm reminded of something Steve Rebell used to say when directing Mark Beneke or whomever was working the front door that night. If they look like me and talk like me, do not let them in. <laughs> that was Stevie. We all miss you. Okay. David Rodriguez and I had no idea what we were in for when we walked into that movie theater on East 86th Street and 2nd Avenue. We had started our day with cheeseburgers and frozen hot chocolates at Stephen Bruce's world-famous Serendipity on 60th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue, a half a block from Bloomingdale's. It was my birthday, and we were looking forward to a mutual birthday celebration dinner with WBLS radio personality Frankie Crocker at Hippopotamus later that evening. So we walked up 3rd Avenue, smoked a joint, grabbed a cab, bought our tickets to the 2 o'clock showing, sat down, the theater went dark, and then I heard this next track for the very first time.
Staying Alive, 1977, The Bee Gees. Over the next few weeks, I would invite many friends to join me for a showing of Saturday Night Fever. I wanted to share it with the world. I thought it was so wonderful. I paid to see it 12 times. Each time, I'd go up to the projection booth and give the attendant a $10 or $20 bill to crank up the volume. I got the same reaction every single time. From the minute John Travolta appeared and Staying Alive hit the speakers, regardless of ethnicity or age or their station in life, people were captured by this film and the soundtrack. I, too, was obsessed with it. So David and I left the theater, went to a record store, I bought the album, and several hours later, Ken Carey of South Soul Records was in the DJ booth at Hippopotamus asking DJ Bobby Gordon to play four cuts from the album for my birthday. Hippopotamus was one of my top five favorite clubs, right around the corner from where I lived. Comfortable, great food, sexy atmosphere, and great dance music. A favorite hangout for music industry people and wise guys. Some really good DJs played there, beginning with Richie Pompanella, Howard Merritt, Bobby Gordon, and Rafael Charas. Fast forward to 1982. Hosting a party for the cast of characters on Saturday Night Live was always a lot of fun. We never knew what to expect. One of my favorite SNL Christmas parties was in celebration of the film 48 Hours, 
which had been released a few days before on December 8th of 1982, starring Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy. The musical guest for that evening was Lionel Richie, and the host was Nick Nolte. When Nick showed up for rehearsals on Saturday afternoon, he didn't look too good. And then, five minutes later, he threw up all over Eddie Murphy. I mean, Linda Blair-style throw-up, right out of The Exorcist. (laughs) It was obvious that Nick was much too sick to go on with the rehearsal after his hardcore night of drinking and partying with cocaine and Mark Fleischman the night before at studio. And so it was decided that Eddie Murphy would step in and host the show, the first time ever an active member of the Saturday Night Live cast had been given the honor of hosting the show. The show was a huge success from the very opening, from the opening monologue, when Eddie went off script and said, And live from New York, it's the Eddie Murphy Show. Some people didn't like that too much, but who cares? It worked. Thank you. 
Okay, that was Boogie Oogie Oogie from 1978, A Taste of Honey. You might want to know that Boogie Oogie Oogie became the first record in the history of Capitol Records ever to sell 2 million copies. It was certified platinum. The Saturday Night Live after parties were always very private, with invitations going to cast members and their invited guests only. They all needed to unwind after a grueling week of preparation for the show, which has always been performed in front of a live audience. We reserved the rubber room, and we agreed once again to let them use the fire escape to get to the door 100 feet up from the sidewalk to the rubber room. They always requested that the fire escape be printed on the invitation. It was insane watching them climb the five stories up the side of the building to the rubber room on the outdoor fire escape, but they loved it. They were all such children. They enjoyed being naughty and doing the unexpected. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, you are at the very top, five levels up, of an old opera house. Everything is decorated in black, the balcony dance floor, the comfortable couches, The bar and the candles are black, and you are enveloped in the bass-heavy Richard Long sound system. And so, after the show that night, Joe Piscopo, Julia Louise Dreyfus, Gilda Radner, Brad Hall, Clint Smith, Eddie Murphy, and the Saturday Night Live stage crew and all their invited friends made their way to the back entrance of Studio 54 on West 53rd Street, and they climbed the fire escape five floors up to the rubber room. After an hour or so, John Belushi requested the next record I'm going to play for you. Because when the mood hits you for this track, nothing else will do.
Okay, that was Disco Inferno by The Tramps. This record was originally recorded in 1976. Not a big success on pop radio. It stopped selling at number 53 on the pop charts. But then the one and only Tom Moulton did a 10 minute and 57 second version, which was included on the soundtrack to the 1977 film Saturday Night Fever. Atlantic Records released Tom's 1057 version to club DJs and combined with the new release and it being included on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, it continued to sell. Disco Inferno zoomed up to number 11 on Billboard's Hot 100 during the spring of 1978, becoming the Tramp's biggest selling and most recognized single. Which reminds me that the sexiest of Tom Katz, Tom Moulton, is celebrating his 80th birthday with us right here on Crib Radio tomorrow evening. So tune in. If you're on Facebook, just go to Crib Radio. If not, punch in www.crossfaderstudios.com and join us in wishing the one and only Tom Moulton, who has given us all some of the best dance floor productions to enjoy and dance our asses off to. I'll be there. Join us. Okay, back to Saturday Night Fever. The album sold 40 million records. Ron Baker on bass, Earl Young on drums, Norman Harris, T.J. Tyndall, and Bobby Eli on guitar. Ron Kersey wrote Disco Inferno with his buddy Leroy Green partying one afternoon in a hotel room in La La Land. All the curtains were drawn. They were getting high as fuck. Watching the film Towering Inferno. Kersey arranged and produced it and played electric piano, synthesizer. T.J. Conway played acoustic piano. Just to give you a little background on my friend Ron Have Mercy Kersey, he was born in Philadelphia, graduated from Edison High School. He sang in the Glee Club and played football. He served in the United States Air Force from 1967 through 1972. When Ronnie returned to Philadelphia, he hooked up with his longtime buddy and good friend, Norman Harris. Norman was key in Kersey becoming a studio musician at Sigma Sound Studios. Kersey became a member of the Tramps, but he didn't like the constant traveling, so he quit the band and concentrated on producing and writing. Smart move. Kersey was a member of MFSB and the Sal Soul Orchestra. He produced and co-wrote songs that reached the top 20 for other artists like Teddy Pendergrass, Stacey Ladislaw, Lou Rawls, the OJs, and the one and only, my personal favorite, the classic slow jam, Send For Me by Atlantic Star, which he co-wrote with his friend Sam Dees. Kersey moved to the West Coast in 1980, where he continued to work as a studio musician. But he suffered a stroke in 1997, and he returned to Philadelphia, and then, sadly, he passed on in 2005. You are in the tracks, my friend. I think of you often. Just the other night, I was in the chat room of Crib Radio, and DJ Joe DeMonte dropped the needle on this next track that I'm going to play for you. A classic 
composed by you, my friend. Have mercy, Kersey.
Okay, that was Love Chant by Ron Kersey, 1976, recorded by Eli's Second Coming. Composed by Ron Kersey and the unmistakable sound of Bobby Eli on guitar and the very beautiful vibes of Vince Montana. And you, Kersey, on electric piano. Okay, now we're going to go back to 1965. I was working as a showroom model at Geist & Geist Knitwear on 7th Avenue. I'll never forget, it was a Wednesday morning, December 22nd. I had just graduated from Syosset High in June, a few months before, and I had just turned 18 three days earlier on December 19th. The receptionist paged me. I had a call. It was Mark Fleischman. Hi, Mark. Hi, Denise. Are you busy tonight? Great. I'll meet you in the lobby at 7. We're going to the premiere of Dr. Zhivago. Well, not exactly. We're going to the dinner after the premiere at the Americana Hotel. So dress up. I'm wearing a tuxedo. I'll meet you in the downstairs lobby at 7 o'clock. Bye. Wow. This sounds like fun. <laughs> But I really didn't have anything appropriate to wear. And then I remembered, yes, I know, I'll wear my senior prom dress. I called my friend Marla. I had signed a one-year lease at the Forest Hills Inn, Mark Fleischman's hotel, and Marla was staying with me for a few days. So I asked her to take my prom dress over to Mr. Chan at the Chinese Laundry and beg him beg him to please ask his brother to shorten it by 36 inches. It was a floor-length gown, and I wanted a mini, and I needed it by 5 o'clock. It turned out beautiful, a snow-white potassois mini dress with a French blue sash. My grandmother had recently bought me a hot pink wool flare mini coat with 8 inches of heavy white fox trim on each sleeve, when I saw it in the store and tried it on, my grandmother said, we'll take it. You could find one-of-a-kind designer closeouts like that at S. Klein on 14th Street back then. It was a great place. I felt like Cinderella that night. Marla could do anything with hair, and she put my hair up in a French twist. Very Bridget Bardot. A bracelet and earrings borrowed from my grandmother, and I was ready.
another great track from Saturday Night Fever. Night Fever, 1977, The Bee Gees. The next thing I remember, Mark and I were seated at the main table with David Lean, director of Dr. Zhivago, Carlo Ponti, producer of the film, and husband of Sophia Loren. It was a lot to take in all at one time. I recognized Carlo Ponti immediately, and I thought to myself, wow, could she be here too? And then there she was, Sophia Loren. Even though the very handsome and utterly charming Omar Sharif was seated next to her, it was all about Sophia, that face, those huge almond-shaped eyes. I couldn't take my eyes off her. The enormous emeralds and diamonds dressing her neck and ears, she was and is still utterly mesmerizing. I've yet to tell you about Mark's partnership in the film company New Line Cinema, which I'm certain played a part in our being seated where we were that evening. But I'll tell you more about that in a future episode of Inside Studio 54 in Season 2. Mark and I ended up in the penthouse apartment of Bergdorf Goodman, along with several others, drinking champagne and watching Omar Sharif win $10,000 in a backgammon game with a friend of Edwin Goodman, owner of Bergdorf Goodman. And then we were off to the brasserie, a favorite hangout for music industry people. I had my favorite onion soup and escargot, and then Mark and I headed back to the Forest Hills Inn and my friend Marla, who waited up for me. She wanted to hear every detail. My next two selections will forever remind me of that night. Mark and I were waiting in the limousine for our car to deliver us to the red carpet, and boom! Mark's driver turned up the volume in the car on the radio with this next song. This groove was played everywhere back in 1965.
that was The In Crowd, 1964, by Dobie Gray. Yep, spending cash, talking trash. If it's square, we ain't there. Everyone loved the lyrics to that one. It was written by Billy Page and arranged by his brother, the one and only Gene Page, who did all those very lush arrangements for Barry White. I couldn't decide which version to play this evening, so I played both. The In Crowd, Ramsey Lewis, 1965. A waitress in a nightclub suggested to Ramsey Lewis that he record the In Crowd, and so he did, and it became one of those rare jazz singles that made it to the pop chart. He recorded it live in the Bohemian Cavern nightclub in Washington, D.C. The audience and the fans that you hear on this one are half the enjoyment and excitement of this record. The In Crowd reached number two on the R&B chart and number five on Billboard Hot 100. The song was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2009. Okay. There are many, many great friendships in the music industry, friendships that many people know nothing about, like Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones and his lifelong friendship with Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes. The two met for the first time in 1964 when the Rolling Stones were the opening act for the Ronettes during the Ronettes' first tour of England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, known as the United Kingdom. The Ronettes were the hottest girl group in the world, and early in 1963, they had just released one of the greatest songs ever recorded, Be My Baby, produced by Phil Spector. We were 20 years old, and I fell in love with Ronnie Bennett. She later became Mrs. Phil Spector, but in 1964, she was single and the lead singer of the Ronettes, said Keith Richards. I played Be My Baby for you in episode five when the Rolling Stones and the Four Tops partied together in the basement at studio. That's a fun show. Check that out, episode five, and you'll hear Be My Baby. Ronnie Spector goes on to say, That 1964 tour was memorable for both of us because Keith and I became friends on that tour. A mutual respect clicked in early on into the tour. Once we realized we had the same sense of humor and the same attitude towards life. Keith and I would go out after the shows to little bars and pubs and eat hamburgers, Ronnie told People magazine. We didn't think about drinking. We had soda backstage. Everything back then was so innocent.
Okay, that was When You Wake Up Tomorrow by Candy Staten, 1979. Ronnie Spector and Keith Richards were reunited in New York not long after that tour ended. Ronnie tells it like this. The first time Keith Richards and Mick Jagger came to America, they were not successful yet. They slept on my mother's living room floor up in Spanish Harlem. They had no money, and my mom would get up in the morning and make them bacon and eggs, and Keith would always say, thank you, Mrs. Bennett. The first time I went to heaven was when I woke up with Ronnie Bennett asleep with a smile on her face, said Keith Richards. We were kids. It doesn't get any better than that. What can I say? She took me to her parents' house and then took me to her bedroom. Several times, as a matter of fact. And then reality hit. Without talking about it, we both realized we were each awash in our respective drives for success. And as much as we didn't take to other people directing and controlling us, there was not much we could do about it, said Keith. That was the choice we made and the price we had to pay.
Okay, that was What You're Gonna Do With My Lovin' from 1979, Stephanie Mills, and written by Stephanie Mills. In my opinion, a flawless production by James M. Tume and Reggie Lucas, another hit out of Sigma Sound in Philadelphia. The song went to 22 on Billboard's Hot 100. Okay, back to Ronnie Spector. I took them to the Apollo Theater to see James Brown, said Ronnie Spector. I took them backstage, and they met all these rhythm and blues stars. I remember Mick standing and staring at the door to James Brown's dressing room after the show. Mick just stood there. He was shaking. That visit to America and everything they did and the people they met made them even more determined to be successful. They then went back to London, and when they returned to America just a few months later in 1965, they were superstars with their release of I Can't Get No Satisfaction.
That was More Than a Woman, another track from Saturday Night Fever by the Bee Gees. Decades later, in 2007, Keith Richards had the pleasure and the honor of inducting his friend Ronnie Spector and the Ronettes into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He recalled when he first heard the girl group sing Be My Baby, they touched my heart right there and then, and they touch it still. Over the years, Keith Richards and Ronnie Spector's friendship remained. Ronnie had married Phil Spector in 1968, an abusive relationship, to put it mildly. A man who kept her locked up, literally. He made her a prisoner in his California mansion, preventing her from singing, recording, or touring. Phil Spector warned her if she did not abide by his rules, she would end up in a gold coffin with a glass top. Imagine that. He then took her down to the basement of the mansion to show her the coffin that would be hers if she disobeyed. Over the years, Keith and Ronnie saw a lot of people they love die, but they remained close. Keith lived 15 minutes from me in Connecticut, so I see him quite a bit, said Ronnie. And then Ronnie Spector died on January 12th, of 2022. Keith lost a friend and the world lost a legend. Ronnie's last comment about Keith before she died was in an interview with People magazine. I'll tell you this, nobody has Keith Richards' heart. He has given to and helped so many people in his lifetime. Keith has the biggest, greatest heart I've ever known. May you be resting in heavenly peace, Ronnie Spector. You are missed, never to be forgotten. You are in the soundtrack of our lives. Here we go.
Okay, that was Sleigh Ride, released in 1965 by the Ronettes. It went to number eight on Billboard's Hot 100, and it has remained on Rolling Stone magazine's Top 100 Christmas Songs list for the last 58 years, and every year Sleigh Ride places in the top ten of streaming music at Christmas time. All right, it's time for me to say goodnight. My final selection for this evening is a piece of music I fell in love with the first time I heard it. I was about five years old. I heard it in a church service at Christmas time. I had snuck into the church with my friend Marla. It remains a favorite of mine. To me, this is the most glorious time of the year, so I say Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah to all of you. Take care over the holidays and have lots of fun, fun, fun with those that you love. Good night, boys and girls. Good night, Mark. Listen and enjoy. XOXO.